Hello, Ice Coffee listeners. Episode 36 finds me well grumpy. Since I last recorded, the USA, home nation to three quarters of my immediate family, elected Donald fucking Trump as its next leader, and my friend, Peter Young, died at the age of 35. Add to that mix that I find reading and writing about Scott's final expedition pretty grim, and you might understand why I've subbed in an episode about ice diving, my favourite topic in my favourite setting, for November 2016. I wrote the bulk of this piece immediately after getting back to New Zealand following my first trip south in 2004. I did publish some articles about my experiences at the time, but the magazines and such wanted far shorter, punchier copy, and so this longer piece languished, never seeing light. In mid-2016, I began reading articles blogged from the ice by Michael Goldstein, spending the austral winter as a plant operator at the Australian Antarctic Division's Davis Station. Informative and funny, Michael's output offered a window into his life on station that was a cut above the average Antarctic blogging. I responded to a call for images of interesting aviation goings-on in Antarctica, and this kicked off a brief dialogue which resulted in me dusting off the old article, giving it some edits based on the intervening ten years of practice at writing Gooder, and emailed it to him. Michael published the essay, peppering it with some of my better images, and the resulting article can be found at the Absolute Antarctica Facebook page. I'll provide a link in the show notes at the Ice Coffee blog. I'll also provide a link to the Ice Coffee blog there too, in case you have trouble finding that in the first instance. I think the piece stands up well as a representation of that first season specifically, and of the challenges and rewards of ice diving generally. But there's also a lot I left unsaid there, stuff that no magazine or blog would be interested in. I'll address that stuff sometime, but with Peter's death, Trump's triumph, and Scott's tragedy still to recount, this episode was getting bumly enough. So here's the piece I titled, Diving with the Kiwis Among the Penguins. The rope in Paul's hand jerks down. Once. Twice. Three times. Four times. I always hold my breath at four, worrying the pulls will continue, indicating an emergency. Five times. Paul looks up and shouts, Stand by, go! Six times, seven times, then nothing. Mike's on the radio as I lumber out of my seat, clumsy with fins and weights. Scott Bass, Scott Bass, this is Kilo Oscar 6-8, receiving, over. I climb down the step into the dive hole and clip my lanyard onto the now limp safety line as the radio responds. Kilo Oscar 6-8, this is Scott Bass, go ahead, over. Paul checks the seal of my mask. Good to go. I step forward off the working platform into the black water as Mike sends news of our emergency. Scott Bass, we have the standby diver in the water and... is the last I hear from the hut as the water closes over me. I vent my suit and push myself deeper using the rungs of the ladder. The ice is three metres thick and it seems to take an age to reach open water below the hole. When I do, 
I see a motionless body at the end of the safety line. My heart races. Bubbles rise from the body. He's breathing, but there's no other sign of life. I follow the tether to my teammate as fast as my fins will propel me. Twelve metres down and forty across. The longest swim of my life. As I approach, I look for reasons for Brian's apparent loss of consciousness, but spot nothing unusual. Brian's face down on the bottom, but as I get close, I see his eyes are open and that he holds something between his hands. I roll him onto his back. He's grinning like the Cheshire cat. I read the sign he holds. I am an unconscious diver. Rescue me. This emergency drill stood out as the most intense experience of a very intense five weeks spent diving at Scott Base, Ross Island. Cape Armitage, the focus of our efforts, lies just shy of 78 degrees south. Ours isn't the southernmost dive site in the world, but you can see the southernmost dive site in the world from the hut. Diving so far south has its challenges. Even with dry gloves and two layers of insulation, water at minus 1.8 degrees Celsius makes your hands numb after 20 minutes and painful after 30. A leaking glove will end a dive regardless of duration. Besides the pain caused by the sub-zero water flooding in, there's a good chance of tissue damage as ice crystals begin forming inside your hand if you don't get somewhere warm at the hurry-up. Flood a glove and you need to get out of the water quickly, Dress out of your gear and endure half an hour of painful pins and needles as the blood supply slowly returns to your fingers. The low temperatures also cause problems with breathing apparatus. The water exhaled with each breath can freeze onto the mechanism in the second stage regulator, potentially leading to a free flow of your precious air. Such a free flow can become self-accelerating as the expanding gas cools the unit further, causing more ice crystal growth, making the free flow worse. When this happens, the alternate air source comes into play. Trying to breathe from the streaming regulator is impossible, as the rushing air is painfully cold, and the mouthpiece fast becomes buried in a growing fist of ice. Our team used twin first-stage regulators on single cylinders to get around this, allowing us to shut down the free flow and leave the water while using the backup rig. Making a hole in the sea ice to dive through is difficult too. We tried using a diesel-powered glycol heater to melt our holes, but it took a day to make one of the three we needed, so we borrowed a self-propelling drilling rig from the United States Antarctic program at McMurdo Station. This diesel-powered, hydraulically-actuated monster made our metre-wide holes in under half an hour. These holes required daily maintenance with crowbars and shovels to keep them open, as the water began freezing over immediately after the auger finished its work. Two holes set close made a figure-eight shape big enough to accommodate a diver and an experimental array. Another hole lay ten metres away, for use in emergencies. A bulldozer dragged our dive hut, an insulated box the size of a shipping container, fitted with a diesel stove and a hole in the floor to match the hole in the ice, into place over the figure-eight hole, and we made ourselves at home. 
we piled snow at the ends of the hut to keep the wind from blowing in through the floor hole, and lit the diesel stove, which remained lit for the next five weeks, other than when it overheated and tripped the cutout, seeing us arrive one morning to a cold-soaked hut and dry suits frozen solid. We festooned our diving paraphernalia all over the place. It hung from the rafters, took up every bit of bench space, bulged from wall hooks and, to keep life exciting, fell into the dive hole unexpectedly, causing much mirth and name-calling. The first dives comprised familiarisation and safety checks. I felt very nervous dressing in for that first plunge through the hole. My newly reconditioned suit felt unfamiliar. The dry glove system I chose seemed clumsy and required assistance to don. I kept casting glances at the water and looking away quickly. Why had I signed up for this? Cold, overhead environments are fine for cave divers, fish and Weddell seals, but I'm a freediver by nature, and snorkels hold no place under three metres of ice. Not your scene, stupid monkey, came the repeating refrain from some deep-seated brain processor. Ready to go and nerves taut to a fine pitch, I was relegated to standby diver status. The standby diver sits on a chair in the dive hut. They wear everything they need to dive, but, absent an emergency, don't do much but swelter in the heat of the hut. A strange sensation to experience on the coldest continent. A lanyard and carabiner on their rig allows quick attachment to the safety line of a diver in need of assistance, acting as a tether and navigation tool in one. I sat on my chair in the hut, slowly cooking and watching the safety lines of the other divers as their surface tenders tended. After the first check dive, my turn to get wet came and I ramped my nerves back up to taut. A line tender tied a safety line to my harness and I stood ready and near wetting myself on the step. Curiosity about what I might see, curiosity which first got me in the water many years ago, outweighed my timidity and I jumped in the hole. Antarctic seawater doesn't immediately register as being particularly cold. Modern dry suits and their accessories expose only a minimum of skin to the outside world. Everything else is well insulated, if bulky. The first slow descent through the ice built up the tension nicely and then I was out into open space and clear water. It's hard to describe the clarity because water's rarely that clear. Jellyfish and comb jellies drifted about but took up little space, so I could see into the far distance, wherever there was light to see by. The 50 metre by 50 metre square cleared of snow around our worksite allowed light through the sea ice, but where the snow started again, the light stopped, as though someone dropped a black velvet curtain through the water. It felt like diving into the footlights of a stage, with a spotlight below the emergency hole and an audience of Waddell seals out in the darkness. We could hear the seals, but they mostly stayed out of the light, adding a faintly creepy element to the already surreal experience. Waddell seals make eerie, warbling calls that sound like someone messing about with the 1970s synthesizer. Taking me through my familiarisation dive, Brian headed to the bottom and swam south a bit. Black rocks protruded above a third of the seafloor, the remaining space being mostly taken up by anchor ice. Anchor ice forms as thin plates on the benthos, 
These plates mesh together in beautiful geometric shapes until they achieve enough buoyancy to break away from the seafloor or to lift the rocks the ice formed on up to the underside of the sea ice. Invertebrates are often lofted with the rocks and entrained in the brash ice. The underside of the sea ice at our site featured a half metre layer of brash peppered with rocks and sea stars. Large numbers of large invertebrates occupied the ice-free spaces on the seafloor. Sea spiders, some big enough to scare a cat, stalked the ground. Giant isopods took the place of crabs. Sea stars and urchins made up the bulk of the fauna. Nemertian worms, half a metre long and thick as my thumb, occurred in patches. The marine life appeared as diverse, dense and colourful as the assemblages I've studied in temperate latitudes, the main differences being the absence of medium and large-sized fish, and the stillness. Movement costs energy, and there's not much of that to go around until the midsummer plankton bloom, so not much moves. Most local animals rely on filtering plankton from the water during the plankton bloom, or wait for something to die in order to get a feed. Low light levels for most of the year prevents macroalgae establishing. Small fish provided the example to test the rule. Their slow metabolism makes what food they find last, but where I expected to find them sluggish and dull, they were as alert and active as any temperate or tropical equivalent. The banaks, bottom dwellers similar to blennies, occupied any surface offering a view of their surroundings, and quickly swam over to see what we were doing and if it might stir up some food. The dive ended with a gentle ascent up the drop line and a clumsy climb up the hut ladder. Everyone asked for my first impressions, and I did my best to get the words out through lips and cheeks burning with returning blood. The hut felt hot and crowded, as three of us attempted to dress out at the same time without tipping each other into the hole. The research project we went diving for investigated the effects of UV light on the larvae of echinoderms. The sea urchins we collected were taken to the wet lab at Scott Base and chemically induced to spawn. The resulting larvae were placed in small cages made of perspex with a range of UV filtering properties. Placed under the sea ice, the cages exposed the larvae to a variety of UV light regimes. The diving program focused on the collection of the right species for the experiments, the transfer of the cages at the appropriate times, and the manipulation of a light measuring unit. The cages, suspended in stainless steel frames, resembled old-school TV antennae. The Banaks quickly spotted the frame's potential as prime vantage points, and three or four could usually be found hanging out on them when we arrived to retrieve the cages or clean anchor ice off the assembly. Waddell seals spend much of their lives diving under the sea ice and use any available hole or crack to breathe through. Our large, smooth-sided dive holes represented prime seal estate. They often hauled out through our emergency hole and as many as three could be found lying on the ice near the hut. They used the hut holes for breathing, never seeming bothered by the temperature and noise. They spent four or five minutes charging their blood with oxygen before diving again. 
occasional unformed turds were left at the surface as thanks for our drilling skills and dedication to hole maintenance. An all-fish diet does not do these animals any favours on that front. Silhouettes could often be seen, circling our worksite on the edge of the darkness. Waddells swim unhurriedly, with gentle undulations of their hind flippers. The rest of the body remains still, and they glide past, the size and shape of a household hot water cylinder, big black eyes gazing at you. They paid us little heed, only stopping to watch our activities occasionally. They got more excited if another seal came near. They don't like to share holes and will fight over breathing territory. If a seal is breathing at the surface and hears another seal calling, it will duck its head and look around between breaths. As male seals fight by biting each other on the gonads, it's understandable that they want to know who is about and how big they are. If a seal is in the hole the diver wants to surface through, the diver must wait. Apart from international legal protection, which prohibits the touching of any wildlife without sheaths of permits, they are large, wild animals. Waddell seals seem indifferent to the presence of humans, but no one is keen to test their tolerance by sharing a hole with a 400 kilogram seal. The diver waits for the seal to finish, or uses the emergency hole. I felt charged by my first dive. I knew the procedures and my gear worked well. I could handle it. An experienced diver adapted to a new environment. My third dive disabused me of this notion. Sent below with a bucket to collect critters. About ten minutes into the task, I felt my regulator begin to free flow. This started as a slight overrun in the second stage, continuing to supply air for a fraction of a second after I finished inhaling. I screwed down the sensitivity nut, but it didn't seem to make a difference. The overrun grew longer with each breath, my bubble cloud growing larger and noisier with each successive venting. The regulator achieved runaway free flow, with air billowing from it in a continuous stream. I was already on my way back to the hole by this stage, ascending from 7 metres deep and 20 metres horizontal separation. The regulator became unusable as I reached the drop line below the hut. The expanding air rushing from it chilled and froze any water in contact with it. I swapped to my backup regulator and continued my ascent. We're trained to remove our rig and shut down the free-flowing first stage if we are deep or far from the hole, but I thought I was close enough to swim straight home. I checked the cylinder pressure and reassured myself enough air remained to get me safely to the surface. I entered the access hole and filled it with bubbles, feeling relief as I got a hand onto the bottom rung of the ladder. As I left the water, my rig was getting hard to draw from, and by the time I was clear of the hole, the free flow came to an end as the air ran out. The responsible regulator was a tennis ball-sized lump of solid ice. I hit reset on the experienceometer. I felt a novice again. Diving in the New Zealand program is kept within guidelines laid out by the diving safety officer. Two dives a day can be made for a maximum of 40 minutes and to a maximum depth of 30 metres. Four days of diving must be followed by a day off. There is a standby diver for every dive 
and each diver has attended to work the safety line and to communicate using the line through a shorthand Morse code of bells and pulls. The signals are straightforward, the most common being one pull equals hello, how are you? or I am fine. Four pulls means come back to the hole or I am coming back to the hole. Anything more than four pulls from the diver means something is wrong and gets the standby diver in the water. Similarly, if a query gets no response from the diver, the standby diver is on their way. I felt nervous of the safety line at first. I didn't like the thought of getting it tangled around the various drop lines and experimental rigs with which we littered the site. But after the first week's diving, our site began to experience strong currents, probably eddies caused by a large iceberg, blocking the entrance to McMurdo Sound and affecting the tidal flows. The current would come on and disappear rapidly, sometimes going from nothing to an unworkable knot and a half to nothing again in the space of an hour. Many diving opportunities were missed due to the stronger currents. Some dives were shorter than they might have been because of mild current events. The nightmare of being pulled away from the hole and fighting to get back against a strong current could make me shiver, even in the wide-awake warmth of the Scott-based dining hall. We all came to love the safety line and the feel of someone at the far end watching out for us. I also became fond of the gimp mask, a neoprene bag with holes cut out to fit around your dive mask and mouthpiece. It looked sinister, but it kept the area of exposed skin down to just the lips. We only had one to share between us, and it became hot property. My longest dive below the ice only lasted 35 minutes. Even with all the insulation and the gimp mask, you do get cold, particularly when performing tasks which don't require much movement. It was on such a dive that I saw the most beautiful side of my life. Working on the bottom, I felt the wake of a Waddell seal passing close by, and I looked up from my task on the seafloor. The seal, looking back at me and not watching where it was going, brushed against a carpet of anchor ice, dislodging a cloud of shards which began floating upward, spinning as they rose. This dynamic chandelier of crystals caught the bright summer light streaming in through the safety hole. The light split and scattered in all directions as the dancing ice spiralled its way to the surface. I kept an eye on dislodged anchor ice on all subsequent dives, but with no large clouds dislodged near the emergency hole, it never achieved the same intense kaleidoscopic effect again. I had my camera to hand, but didn't dare drag my eyes away from the transient spectacle to make the adjustments necessary to make the most of the shot, and I stand by that decision. Words are a clumsy substitute for pictures, but even the fanciest camera probably couldn't do the spectacle justice, and I wanted to experience it while it lasted. Other research events took advantage of our ability to collect animals below the ice. The Antarctic Visitor Centre in Christchurch required new stock for their aquarium, and gave us a shopping list of invertebrates to send them. Sadly, not everything we found featured on the collection permit so some beautiful examples of local octopus and sea stars went overlooked to the favour of less spectacular species. The fish physiologists often used our dive hut to drop a line 
attempting to attract the species of interest. They also asked us to collect specimens for them with an aquarium scoop net and a laundry sack, an ad hoc sampling strategy that proved most unsatisfactory, though very entertaining. Getting the net over the fish wasn't hard. As mentioned, the Banak seemed inquisitive about everything going on in their territory. Netting one attracted another two, keen to see what happened to the first. Getting them into the laundry sack was another matter. With one hand you would use water pressure to keep the fish captive by waving the net through the water like a mad fairy with a busted wand. With the other hand you would choke the neck of the sack and shake it until the opening made a good shape to meet the net. Bringing the net and bag together often failed to see the fish go into the bag. This difficult routine felt ridiculous and had me giggling through my mouthpiece for the duration of the dive. For 30 nettings I bagged 12 fish, two of which escaped from the sack during further attempted captures. One of the captives proved to belong to the wrong species. I suspect fish traps long ago superseded divers for this type of work. Our emergency hold proved a popular destination for those wishing to uphold the tradition of the polar plunge, a naked dip into the frigid sea. Most people levitate back out of the hole on contact with the water and run for the warmth of the hut, but one representative of the New Zealand Army did his comrades proud with the swim lasting over a minute. Love your work, Greg. On many levels, diving in Antarctica is the strangest experience of my entire life. Cold, dark, beautiful, terrifying and satisfying all at once. While I'm publishing stuff out of the past, here's something I wrote on request from Nick Johnson. Nick wanted a perspective on McMurdo Station from someone at Scott Base just over the hill for his website, Big Dead Place. I put this together and Nick published it under the pseudonym A. Hobbit. The website, now relegated to web archives since Nick's suicide in 2012, only shows up as a creepy image of Robert Falcon Scott's eye in the top line of my browser. So here's the one piece of content I can revive from that information black hole. Keeping the ugly out in the open. McMurdo Station looms large in the sight and minds of those spending their ice time at Scott Base. Every aspect of life in this little green box is affected by the big, noisy brother just over the hill. Without the enormous airlift and shipping capacity of the American operation, the Kiwi presence in Antarctica would be impossible at its current site and scale. Scott Base has to play ball or be reduced to a single pin-eyed loner taking Dobson measurements and rooting the penguins, sailing out on a five-year rotation. To maintain friendly relations, Kiwis learn to drive on the right, let the Americans come for drinks on Thursdays, and throw their dodgeball matches. To stand on Ob's Hill and look at the two bases, it becomes obvious that McMurdo has been pieced together over successive generations of engineering technology largely pinched from high-latitude mining projects in the north, whereas Scott Base, in its modern form, has been designed with McMurdo's problems in mind. Most of the original Scott Base was removed and replaced as new building techniques came to the fore. 
One base is dirty, ugly and sprawling. The other is clean, uniform and compact. Scott Base still looks like an abattoir, but a shiny new one rather than a rusting, steam-powered anachronism. Regular dustings of snow from the south add to the illusion that Scott Base is clean. The same airborne tipex seems to give McMurdo Station a miss, keeping the ugly out in the open. The greatest advantage of Scott Base's small, connected environment is that occupants can reach any point without having to go outdoors. An additional bonus is that there need be no power lines cutting up the sky, a striking feature of McMurdo's visual landscape. The downside is that if any part of Scott Base catches fire, the whole lot may burn, leaving up to 80 chagrined Kiwis knocking on the door of Hotel California. Visiting McMurdo for sport, gigs or parties, or to skewer vital spare parts to keep the science going, is great for morale. It gets us out of our box, we meet new people, and we eat ice cream. It's easy for blue ECWs to be lost in a sea of red, and no one cares if a Kiwi goes up for third serves of pizza during midrats. The reciprocal, meals from Americans in the Scott Base Canteen, are by invite only. Such invites can be used by unscrupulous Kiwis to garner all manner of favours. It seems because the food is prepared on a tenth of the scale, it's an order of magnitude better than that available in the McMurdo galley. Americans are great. Friendly, generous people. It is surprising for someone who has been dreaming of Antarctica since early childhood to find so many of them so bitter about their lives at McMurdo. And then you visit the accommodation blocks, read their OSHA regulations, and hear how special a day trip to Cape Evans is for the average Raytheon employee, and it starts to make sense. Doctoral candidates working as dishwashers cry tears of joy, which quickly freeze, when invited to Scott Base for a feed and a quick look at the pressure ridges. The ratio of science to support staff is much higher in the Kiwi program, as Scott Base doesn't have to keep the runways open and act as a supply depot to the pole. A Kiwi journalist returned to New Zealand professing that everyone at Scott Base was at the top of their game. This is mostly true, but as New Zealand is a very small place, some games have very few players, and some jerks have managed to rise to prominence in the New Zealand program. A key position in an annual science project has required an antipodean version of Boozy the Clown, without the costume and mitigating alter ego, be foisted upon base staff. Kiwi paranoia is well honed. After 200 years of living in the sporting and economic shadow of Australia's domination of the region, having rich, noisy neighbours is nothing new, and we get on with our tasks with a minimum of diesel envy. As with New Zealand itself, the clean, green appearance of Scott Base is perhaps as much a function of scale as practice and green paint. If any nation tried to establish a thousand-person toehold in the cold, it would necessarily be an ugly, bureaucratic blot on the landscape. But McMurdo has, through its relatively long and varied history, turned out so deeply unappealing that I stand amazed at the number of long-term returnees. 
shout out this episode to Jonathan, who's the first listener I've met face-to-face who wasn't forced to listen to the series through familial or fraternal fealty. Fucking Donald Trump. Gonna miss Peter. Take care and appreciate your coffee.